want it now. We want it now. One of the biggest challenges, I think, as uh, human beings is the challenge where we want reward as soon as we can get it. It is very hard to delay that sense of payment, fulfillment. And, and we experience it in all sorts of places, right? We experience it uh, when it comes to uh, some of the things we'd like to get later down the road. We experience this need for instant gratification when it comes to food, when it comes to relationships, when it comes to items or toys. But sometimes that want of instant fulfillment even comes in areas where normally we would think those areas are designed to curb that want. In other words, there are times where it is in the very fabric of our faith or religion or Christianity or our walk with God that we want something now as opposed to waiting for when God will give it later. And it, it's really that subject that Jesus then walks into in the Sermon on the Mount. The desire to be pleased now, to be praised now, to be rewarded now in, an, in a premature way and in an immature way, as opposed to waiting for God to do it. So, if you have a Bible right now, please open it up to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6. We're looking at verse 1, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. And as you are on your way there, I'm going to go ahead and pray right now, get us teed up for the game today, and see what Jesus has in store for us. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I thank you so much again for your word. I thank you for your heart toward us. I thank you for this manifesto that you've given uh, for our good and for your glory. And I pray that, man, as we continue to look at these challenging truths that you give us, that our hunger, our thirst, our passion, our commitment is to be so closely tucked into you that these things become natural to us because we're being led by your Spirit. We're living through the power of your Word. We're seeking your grace to empower what we do. And again, all of it would be for your fame. And that is what we seek. And so we love you, we thank you, and we praise you, Jesus, in your good and awesome name. Amen. All right, so uh, let's see. Last week, we were back in chapter 5. And in chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, Jesus rolls in and he says, Really, to be a part of what I'm up to, your righteousness must exceed the most religious people you know. Your righteousness must be so point on sticking the landing accurate that everybody looks and goes, wow, that is true righteousness. And really what he did in that was alerted us, alarmed us to the fact that we just can't do that. We're not going to be as righteous as the Pharisees. We are not going to deliver at the level that he communicated. And really from that, it makes us throw our hands in the air and we go, I can't do that. And he says, that's right. You can't do that. So stop trying to think that religion saves. Stop trying to think that you can be perfect in yourself to deliver yourself to God as one blameless, because you can't do it. If anything, we have to come to a very gracious God and we say, I am sinful, I drop to my knees, I am incomplete apart from you, I cannot deliver. Only you can deliver. Right? That's true repentance. That's true acknowledgement. That's true need for God's good news which saves. And so that's how we come. But when we come in that way, with that brokenness of heart, He gives us a righteousness that we didn't earn, that we don't deserve, that we can't manifest in our own person. He just gives us righteousness because of Christ taking our sin. 
And in that righteousness, we begin to live a new way of life, this righteous way of life. But it's through His power, not ours. His strength, not ours. And, and yet, it's, it's strange under that, because again, I think this is an idea that most Christians affirm. Right? We, we, we cannot muster in ourselves this pure righteousness. And you would think with people that embrace that gospel so firmly, we would be those individuals in the world that are most aware that it's not because of me. You would think we'd be most aware in humility that it's only God who works in me both to will and to act. You would think that those saved by grace alone with an acute sense of unworthiness would be the first of all people to be gracious and kind. Understand that, you know what, it's got to be God and not me and I don't merit But a very strange thing happens even in this new life with Jesus. Over the course of time, as our life's being shaped by His good news, we're embracing His Word, we're walking in His Spirit, this other polluted form of mindset can enter under the definition of righteous. And we start to forget what the real righteousness that we need is, and we start thinking about ourselves in terms of being particularly righteous. Not in the way of the gospel, but in a different righteousness, which is kind of a self-righteousness. A religious righteousness. A judgmental righteousness. A righteousness where we start going, I've got it more figured out than they do. A righteousness that begins to become corrupted and polluted in such a way that then we start wanting reward for our righteousness here, now. We want to be seen as righteous. We want to be praised as righteous. We want to be recognized as righteous. See, Jesus knows this is the danger even on His road that He takes us on. We risk falling into the same trap of legalism, the same trap of self-righteousness, the same trap of self-promotion and self-gratification. He knows that's still going to be a potential And so as he preaches the manifesto, and he's just talked about true righteousness, he warns us again. And this time he warns us by pitting us against a group who, man, it's a group you don't want to be a part of. It's not the Pharisee necessarily, though they're a part of this group. It's not the Sadducee, though they're a part of this group. Really, it's more deep than that. It's the hypocrite. Jesus warns us that that idea, that person, that persona, that disposition is easily accessed, especially in the realm of doing things that we perceive as righteous. And that word hypocrite, man, we hear it a lot. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I turn on uh, anything that's dealing with Christianity and culture... I read any book on how does the world see the church, uh, the first word that comes up is we're hypocrites. We're hypocrites. And, and normally, what they mean by that is you claim certain morals that you don't deliver on. And I, and I think that's true. I think that's hypocrisy. But when Jesus thinks about hypocrisy, he goes even a step deeper, not just about our morals, but about our pious practices. 
Things that the world probably doesn't even think about when they think about hypocrites. Jesus looks there and he says, you know what, you've got to worry about the fact that your father is also watching and there's certain things that you claim as this, but your attitude, your motivation is something contrary and that is hypocrisy also. And so Jesus warns, don't become like a hypocrite. In fact, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, he says, watch out. Watch out. He says, don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven as the hypocrites. And he says this a few different times in this particular text. He's like, I don't want you to be a hypocrite. Now, fundamentally, a hypocrite in Jesus' day was an actor. It was somebody that took the stage, put on a mask, and played a part. And and, and when people say, well, that guy's a hypocrite, that's part of what they mean. The guy's just play-acting. They're just faking. But see, when Jesus uses it, he's thinking more in terms of not what the stage actor does, but why the stage actor does it. They seek applause. He says, don't be like the play actors that do what they do because they want to be cheered for. They want clapping behind their life and their name to give them purpose, to have others affirm them and fill them up in that way. He says, man, don't give in to that. In fact, even that phrase right there, watch out. It's a present imperative, which means he's saying all the time, be frosty, because all the time, I am telling you what, there is the danger that we will slide into that kind of thinking. I mean, you know, especially in the church. I mean, in the world, it's a given. People seek the praise of others through something, a raise, a clap on, or a slap on the back, a two thumbs up, whatever. I mean, people want to please other people at some level. But even in the church, even among us as Christians, Jesus says, this is going to be a temptation where you're going to want people to acknowledge your walk with me. You're going to want people to look at you and say, oh, I want to be like them. And there's nothing wrong if people look at your life and they say, I want to be more like you. But if your motive is, I want people to look at me and say they want to be more like me, that's the broken part. Where we start hoping, wishing, and desiring that people recognize us. Jesus says, ah, that is the road of the hypocrite. And you'll be branded as such. And, and Jesus isn't nice to hypocrites, by the way. I mean, you get to like Matthew 23, he calls them like twice the sons of hell and snakes and vipers. And that's not good, you know. Somebody calls you a son of hell and a snake, that's bad. Right? And, and, and so he's saying this is like a, a really serious issue. Serious. Now, does that mean if people see what we do uh, in our spiritual lives and they go, man, that is awesome or that's inspiring, does that mean you're automatically busted because people saw what you did? No, it doesn't mean that at all. If you're just living on fire for Christ, if you're just doing what Jesus wants you to do and somebody sees, man, hopefully they're giving God the credit, but if they see you, it doesn't mean you did anything wrong. But again, if your motive is so that they see you, not so they're inspired to worship God, but so that they are, are encouraged to celebrate you, then again, you're in this place a problem. It's not the deed, it's the motive. And Jesus wants our motive not to be hypocrisy, but rather to be holy. Holy. Right? He wants to drive out the spirit of hypocrisy, drive out the man-pleasing, drive out the want of applause. He says, instead, you do it for your Father. 
who is in the secret place. And he will say that three different times in this section we're looking at today. You do it for an audience of one. Just one. And can I tell you one of the most freeing things that ever happened for me as a pastor? It's when I stopped trying to please the congregation. I mean, honestly, and for the longest time as a young pastor, I would come out of every Sunday and I'd be beating myself up if I didn't get a, hey, good message, pastor. I mean, we pastors, we hunger for that, hey, great message, good job, that was awesome, that was whatever. If we didn't get that, you know, like if I didn't get that for a number of years, I would just be like skulking around. And yes, I use the word skulking from time to time. I would skulk around. After church on Sunday, Ellen would be like, let's go to lunch. I'm like, all right, let's just drive to hell. You know what I mean? Like, um, you know, I'd just be down and depressed. And it was all about, please feed me, congregation. Feed me. Or on the flip, I get the nasty gram on Monday. Ooh, thank you for that email. It's awesome. Right? So I walk out. That was awesome. Bam, that sucked. Here's why. You know, and then, yeah, just deflate. Because the audience let me know, not pleased with you. Or the audience let me know, very pleased with you, Pastor. Oh, praise Jesus. Just confessing. It was a number of years before God freed me of that and reminded me, you know what? You're not going to face them in the end. You're going to face me, bro. You're going to face me. If you're worried about pleasing me, sometimes they won't like you. Newsflash, they killed me, you know? <laughs> What's worse you're going to get? A couple of nasty emails. Maybe you'll get fired. But I died. When, you know? So it's like you realize that there is freedom in just pleasing an audience of one. The life of obedience changes when you're just wanting to please an audience of one. Because then you do in private what you would do in public. See, if you're just trying to please people, private life and public life can look very different. Right? The mind can be very different than the actions. Because again, we're not focused on the audience of one. We're focused on how everybody else perceives us. Right? It's a very dangerous place to be concerned about the praises of people, and it's certainly not holy. We should be concerned with our Father in the secret place where He sees our secret mind, He watches our secret actions, He knows our secret wants. Right? So Jesus is really getting close to home on some of this to drive us back to who are you seeking to please? Who do you want to connect with? And I think that is the most critical thing for anybody, period, ever. It's to Him. It's for Him. It's by Him. That's it. He says that's true holiness. And that deals with the heart. That's a heart issue again. It comes back to our motive. Why do we do what we do? Why do we fear what we fear? Who are we trying to please and why? That's a heart thing. And Jesus has already told us what the heart needs to be like. It needs to surpass righteousness, which means it's not concerned about the praises of men. It's concerned about the praise of God. That's right heart. That's surpassing righteousness. That's the righteousness that Christ has purchased for us and given to us freely. So that we can dwell in the security that he brings by saying, hey, you're good in my sight. Just focus on me. Just focus on me. And I will reward you openly. See, that's the stuff that Jesus has saved us to display. And so, as he gets now into chapter 6, 
of his message, he begins to unpack some of the, uh, these ideas a little bit more. And he begins to address areas of piety, not just areas of practice like we learned last week, like anger and divorce and lust and keeping your word and stuff like that, stuff you have to go do in the regular world. But now he gets to three areas that are distinctly about issues of faith, things that God is looking at. And the first thing he wants to deal with is our heart as it relates to giving. Right? So he jumps track out of just saying, hey, be perfect as your father's perfect. We know we're not going to be perfect in this life, but we use that idea to navigate by. He jumps right into now let's have the rubber meet the road, the grits meet the skillet, whatever phrase you want to use. And he deals with giving. And he doesn't want us to be like some of the hypocrites. And so in verse 2, he says, thus... When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward in full. See, what they do, they would roll in with cash, whatever it is, and look at me, I'm sacrificing, look at me, I'm giving, look at me, I'm philanthropic, I care. And yet, you know what Jesus says? They're not giving. They're buying. They're buying praise. They're buying say-so. They're buying adoration. They're buying recognition. It's just a purchase. You might as well go to the casino at that point. You might as well go to the movies. You might as well hire people just to say you're awesome and clap. Which would be really cool. Um, Because that's all it was worth. That's all it did. It was for the praise of people. And you know what? This happens still all the time, man. Nonprofit organizations, charities, churches. We all create mechanisms so you give to be recognized. Right? We do. I, I remember the, the, the first church I was a lead pastor at, Beacon Chapel. Uh, eventually, it was, we changed the name to Beacon Bible Church. And, and I remember one day I was going through some stuff in the closet. I came across this box filled with plaques. And so I asked the elders, I said, what, what's this? And they said, oh yeah, that was before we pulled those things down during the remodel. Everything had a plaque on it saying this donated by so-and-so. And this donated by so-and-so. And, and, and there was probably a good 200 plaques in the box. And, and I said, like, where? And they're like, well, there was different sections of each pew. So like you could go in with four of your friends to buy a pew. And then there would be a plaque like this, this section of pew given by the fishers and this section of pew given by... I'm like, you're kidding. Like, no, matter of fact, this one was for the sink in the bathroom. Literally, yeah, plaque over the sink. This sink dedicated by and given in behalf of, you know, like that. I'm like, I don't want to know who gave the sink. I don't want to know. But it just celebrated everybody. Everybody contributed. Look at the Crystal Cathedral, all those beautiful glass panels. Every one of those has a name etched into the corner of the family or person who bought that. Right? So for $5,000, you get a glass panel with your name on it. Hey, congratulations. That's what you got. You got a hunk of glass owned now by the Catholics. All right? So, hey, more power to you. Pope loves it. He'll probably sandblast your name off to you because you have not gone through the sacraments of the Catholic Church. Sorry. All right. So, gone. Spent. And, and so that's sometimes how it happens. I mean, you think about how many buildings are built provided that the person that gave the money has their name on it. Celebrated, praised. Everybody, thank you. 
Sometimes it doesn't look this way. Sometimes it looks where people in the church, uh, they, they try to give a lot, uh, hoping for influence, hoping for leverage, hoping for some level of, oh, well, you're a big giver, so you get more attention, right? And, and, and that's a little bit of their motive. And they'll even say, hey, listen, if they get really mad, you know what I'm going to do? Matter of fact, I remember this one time, there's this guy in my office very mad that I wasn't doing what he wanted me to do. And he says, well, maybe I'll just take my five-figure tithe and go to another church. I'm like, oh, please, please, please. You know, so like, you need to do that. You know, that's what I told him. You should do that. You should do that. Because I just figured out that that five-figure salary is not going into anything kingdom. This is about you getting say-so. And he was kind of a crybaby anyway, so I understood, but still. Um, yeah, that wasn't right. All right, so, um, but it was like, no, it's not, a, it's not a vote. It's not if I give a lot. I have more leeway. That's for the praise of men, the control of men, the fear of men, the whatever. It's not kingdom. And so Jesus says, man, you don't want to give for those reasons. No, your heart is to be completely different. He says, but when you give, verse 3, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now, that left hand, right hand thing is kind of cool because, again, we look at that and we go, oh, okay, so it's just to be private, right? Your hand, left hand doesn't even know, like, what did you do? I don't know. You know, it's not like, you know, it's, but it's not quite like that, all right? Uh, the idea that Jesus is getting at is saying, if, if your right hand gives and your left hand doesn't know, here's what you can't do. Look at me. Can't do this. If the right hand gives, left hand, hand can't do this, right? All you're left with is, as, I don't know. Did you know what I did? Nope. You know what I mean? So you can't, you can't praise yourself. You can't call attention to yourself. You just, you just do it. You just do it. And the only person that is to pay attention to that is audience of one. Just Jesus, Right? Jesus is the one that we're to care about. That's it. It's that simple. I think the most important thing that we have to keep in mind about this is that fundamentally, we don't give to people or organizations or churches or institutions or whatever it is. We give to God. We give to God. Right? That's it. And as soon as we start thinking, no, 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 I'm giving to an organization and I'm giving to God, then we're putting a string on the dollar that isn't ours to tie. We either give to God or we give for some other motive. Whatever that might be, right? Whether it be control, whether it be praise, whether it be say so, whether it be to say, I did it, I gave to that. Whatever, Jesus, don't. Right? As soon as it leaves our hands, it's just God's. And we go, okay, cool. Because they do it for an audience of one. That is the heart in giving. That is the heart of the kingdom. That is a surpassing righteousness. So he says that's the first thing. Second area, which is even closer to home than that, is the area of praying. He's looking for a certain heart in this particular realm. And so, the first thing he's going to get into is that when we pray, it's not for show. 
It's not for show. Now, now, kind of thinking about this topic of prayer, before I get into that, um, I, I think there's something that I need to put on the table in, in, that, I, that I think it's important for us to really wrestle with when it comes to prayer. And that is, you know, sometimes we'll, we'll think about what the enemy wants to accomplish in our lives, what Satan wants to do in our lives. And we'll think, well, what Satan wants to bring into my world is debt that shackles me, or what Satan wants to bring is infidelity that ruins my marriage, or rebellious child that disrupts, disrupts the home, or anger, or bitterness, or any of these other things. Uh, what I continue to realize is that I don't think Satan is as interested in bringing all of that junk into our lives as much as he is fixated on one thing, which is, if I can just make them busy then they don't seem to pray that often and all that other stuff just marches in of its own accord. Right? If I can get them to just be too functional in life to stop, to meditate, to ponder, unpack, and pray. I can keep them ratcheted into all kinds of things. I mean, I think about this in my own life. When there's moments of anxiety, fear, discouragement, you know what's missing is prayer. Right? Because I'm, I'm so busy trying to fix the problem. I'm so tr- busy trying to figure out the solution. I'm so busy worrying about how to fix the problem. Even, you know, that I, I'm too busy to pray. Families can't figure out why is the marriage on the rails? Well, we're too busy to pray. Why, why is life depressing? Well, sometimes we're just too busy to pray. And so Satan ultimately wants to step in and mess with prayer. I think this is why Jesus is highlighting prayer and trying to get us on the rails with prayer. To point us in the right direction to make sure that it is healthy. To realize that prayer holds everything together. And I think this is really important too. I mean, you even look at like Matt, or, uh, Ephesians chapter 6, the armor of God. Everybody gets excited about that, right? I got a sword and a shield and boots and a belt, helmet. But you know what's cool? Then he gets into verse 18 and he says, you know what? Your fighting style is prayer. And all this other stuff is cool, but your fighting style, your stance is prayer. And I love prayer because, man, prayer is the place where we can be truly human. I mean, think about how radically human people were in prayer. David, I love you. God, I loathe you. God, you loathe me. I'm so confused. I mean, like, that was David when he prayed. He was just radical, raw, honest. In prayer, man, we can be weak, we can be broken, we can be frustrated, we can be vulnerable, we can be happy, we can be hopeful, we can be anticipating. Uh, all of that is true to prayer. Right? So it is an expressive thing. It is open, wide open for all sorts of things. And Satan hates it. You want to wreck his day? Pray. And he's in there going, please don't pray. Please don't pray. Or if you pray, pray for all the wrong reasons. Like, for example, first reason, for show. Pray for show, verse 5. He says, and when you pray, do not pray like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Right? Praying to impress. Praying for show. And, and, you know, maybe in our own personal lives, uh, this isn't as as common, but when you get together in groups, that's, that's where the risk can be, right? Where we start uh, praying because uh, we, we want to uh, make sure we're, I don't know, fitting into the group. And so sometimes we, we really think through the words we're going to do, and we, we, we use these very poetic, very profound 
phrase this because we're hoping somewhere in the circle is going to be like, wow, that was awesome. Right? Here's the deal. The only person that you could potentially impress is busy trying to figure out how to impress you, so nobody's really paying attention to the impressing thing, all right? They're not. They're just not. And so we shouldn't look at a person and say, I'm praying to impress the people around me. We, we shouldn't necessarily, you know, look at our prayers and say, um, well, I want to make sure I ensure quality control in this prayer group. So I'll make sure I have an introduction, three points, and a conclusion. You know, like, like and, I, and I know the temptation for that. I'm not trying to, like, totally make you go, I'm never praying in a group again. That's not what I, you know, I don't want you to do that, which is the temptation now, right? You'll be like, I'll just shut up because Matt said this and this and this. So, no, pray. But it's not like you have to sit there and go, okay, how am I going to open this up? I'm going to start with a the or the or maybe and the or but. You know, I mean, you don't have to do that. Just, just let it go. Another encouragement when you're in a group, uh, don't pray, i.e. preach, to the others in the group. Because now you're just focused on them. Dear Lord Jesus, I just want to pray right now that you would give us a forgiving heart when somebody in the group buys a car because, God, you gave it to them, but the other person's jealous because their husband doesn't have a good job. I just want to pray that you open. You know, like, don't do that. Don't do that. It's not a healthy thing. And I'll tell you one. This is, this, is, this is one of my personal favorites that I struggled with for a while. Praying in a group. Where you're praying, looking for the hmm. You know what I'm talking about? You'd you be praying, I'll send somebody across, and they go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? And you're like, you know, so you have your prayer, and I'm like, I only got two mm-hmms. What the heck? I was going for like five mm-hms. You know? And, and if you're in charismatic groups, it's like, oh, yes, Lord Jesus, yes, bring it, bring it. I mean, you really want that. You know, you're hoping you get a charismatic prayer group. It's all over, man. You're like, if you get one of those, like, that's like a 10 on the prayer scale. You know what I mean? That's, and sometimes we want that. We want to be affirmed. We want to make sure that we get high marks on our prayers. And Jesus says, nah, you, you don't pray for show, right? You're not praying for attention or recognition. You're just praying to your Father. The Jews pray for show. But then Jesus says there's another group and they pray for dough. Verse 7, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. He says, don't be like them either. The Gentiles were very different than the Jews when it came to prayer. Gentiles prayed for a couple of different reasons, a little bit like the way we sometimes meet people that pray today. They use prayer like a spare tire. You hope you never have to use it, but it's there. And there's some people like that, that you know in your life. I'm not talking about Christian people. I'm saying non-Christian people that believe in God. And they're like, I, I only pray when there's a problem. And that was true of the Gentiles. They would sometimes pray if there was a problem. The other reality is sometimes the Gentiles prayed because they needed something. This is a little bit like if you have a teenager who only comes and talks to you when they need food or gas or car or ride or you know, whatever. Is it like, you're just here to talk to me? Well, if you need that as I ask for food, that's great. But, you know, it's like... Um, and the Gentiles would pray to God like that. Because ultimately, the Gentiles didn't believe in the idea of having an intimate, personal relationship with their gods. Right? They just didn't believe in that. There was tons of gods. And so, uh, with that, this is why Jesus says you don't want to use methodology, methodology like empty phrases or meaningless words. These empty phrases or meaningless words are directly tethered to the pagan gods that they worship. And so, you know, somebody would say, oh man, I, I, I have these different needs, and so Venus, there's this girl I like. Will you make her like me? Zeus, you've got lightning bolts. Can you kill the guy she likes now? Um, you know, that would be the way they would pray. 
they would use many words because they would try to butter up the gods. You were so strong and brave and bold and cool and buff. Hercules is your kid. He's awesome. You know, I mean, and, and they just try to butter up the gods. Jesus says, man, you don't have to use all of these empty phrases and many words. In fact, even that idea of empty phrases is a word in Greek, which is bada, which is uh, a little bit like you said, boom. You know, it's a noise that also describes the idea. Uh, onomatopoetic is the, the technical term for it. But um, it would be people that would just literally think like a mantra or a chant even would do it. Meaningless stuff. Doesn't even make sense. A little bit like bada, 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 bada. Like you, if you just keep doing that, you know, I'd even change it. Bada, bing, bada, boom. That would be cool, but it doesn't mean anything. Right? And so they would think, well, that's what I'm going to get my God to, to act on. So if I'm praising him, flattering him, doing mantra, saying the same thing over and over, man, this is going to get God to move. And Jesus says, no, this is not the way it works. Which is hard because you know what we do sometimes? We get into that same vein of thinking. If I just pray for a really long time, God will hear me. If I just really try to butter God up, he'll act. If I just keep praising and praising and praising and praising and praising, he'll somehow go, oh man, that person loves me so much, I'll finally do this. We sometimes feel like we need to earn God's answer. We do. We feel like we have to earn his response. And that's what Jesus is concerned about here, that he doesn't want us to do. He says, you don't need to do that at all. He says, don't be like them. I love that. Instead, he says, but you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you've shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask. See, I love this for a number of reasons. First, he says, go into this closet, and your Father who is in the secret place. Your father's in that secret place. See, we as human beings, we love sacred spaces, right? This is why we like cathedrals and things like that, because all oh, this is set apart from all the world as a place where God can dwell with people. And yet Jesus shows us that this most sacred space was the pantry. You want to really experience sacred space? He says, just get alone with God. You know what that means? This is the best thing. That means that as a mom crying on the bathroom floor because you're overwhelmed because the kids are just crazy and you don't know what to do, that becomes sacred space. If you're in a steamed up car, broken hearted, that's sacred space. If you're at work and something's gone really bad and you just shut the office door, that becomes sacred space. You're at school, something terrible has happened, you've had a fight with a friend, you don't know what to do, you just go into the bathrooms over here, shut the stall door, sacred space, taking a walk down the road, just hanging out in your kitchen in the early morning, whatever it is, sacred space. Patios and boats and buses and planes, coach and first class can become sacred space, right? It's all sacred space if you're saying, I just want to talk to you, God. I just want to be with you. You come and you join me in that sacred space. A place so small, only one person fits, there's two. Some foxhole in the middle of the desert where you don't even understand why or how God can be there. See, that's the power of prayer that Jesus brings in the new covenant. And it's not just uh, God who comes to be with you. He says, our Father 
our Abba, our Dad. See, some of us read that, and it, it isn't comforting. You know, some of us didn't grow up with the best dads. Some of us, our dads were just there to scold or there to chew out or they were so detached, uh, you know, we really didn't even know them. And yet our Father God, He steps in and He says, no, I'm going to be there for you. And that's going to mean contouring and shaping and there's going to be some things that I do in your life that you feel are hard now, but it is for your best because I love you that much. And so you join with me in that secret place and together, father and child, we connect. We connect. And the great thing is, you know what? He knows what we need, it says, before we ask. He knows what we need. Here, here's my encouragement. Sometimes our prayers are long on the here's what we need side and short on the, hey God, I just want to hang with you side. And what Jesus tells us is just flip that and you're going to do yourself a big favor. God knows what you need. Hey, uh, we need help with our mortgage. He says, I know, but thank you for telling me. I don't mean that a bad way. I mean that a good way. In other words, you don't have to be like, please, 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 please. It's not like your 12-year-old wanting a cookie. You don't have to do that. Um, just, God, here's what I need. You know what I have need of before I ask. And, and, and then from there, you want to transition into God. I want to be close to you because I don't know what you're going to do with that request. I know that everything is going to happen for my good, but I don't know what that means. I may not see what I am hoping for or longing for. And so, God, I want to be close to you. So whatever happens, I sense your presence. I feel your strength. I have confidence in your plan. See, that's what we need. In fact, there was a great quote I came across this week by Soren Kierkegaard, and he said this, A man prayed, and at first he thought that prayer was talking. But he became more and more quiet until in the end he finally realized that prayer is actually listening. And there's something about that in the secret place, which is different than, uh, you know, just kind of the popcorn prayers or just before I fall asleep prayers. There's something about wherever that is to just isolate with God. That God then has this room to really speak into us. And to shape our lives and to bring things out in us. It's like... That, that prayer closet, that, that sacred space that is created is just a place of fusion, right? Where it fuses like light and heat and God impassions us and illuminates what's going on. And sometimes those moments are aha and other times are uh-oh. And, you know, but he speaks. And so that's why we want to isolate that space so he can speak. And so Jesus says, that's how you pray. And as you do so, you start by being God-centered, more than initially us-centered. It gets there eventually, but to us. But really, it starts with God-centered. And that's how he gives this model for prayer. First, he says it's for his name. Our Father in heaven. May your name be kept holy there in verse 9. And I love this. This isn't saying, God, you are holy. What it's actually saying is a request. God, may the world see your name is holy. By my lips... By my loves, by my life, I want them to know that I see you as uncommon, set apart, supreme, worthy of praise and adoration. God, that's my prayer. See, what's cool about this disciples' prayer, it's really not the Lord's prayer as much as it's the disciples' prayer. What's great about this is as much as it is a prayer, it is a map on how to live. So the first thing, God, may everybody see your name as holy. And by that, I'm praying that through my life, everybody can see your name as holy. So when people question you, is God good and loving? Why would he let this terrible thing happen? I'm supposed to point back to the fact that God is holy, even though I don't understand. And so I pray, God, help me to do that. Help me to be strong in that. I ask for your fame. Another thing 
We pray for His kingdom. He says, may your kingdom come soon. I love this. We're supposed to long for the return of Jesus in our prayer. That word Maranatha, if you've ever heard Maranatha, it just means, oh Lord, come. Can I tell you why that's an important prayer for us? We're pretty wedded to this life. We're very wedded to this life. You know how you know it? When you're young, you go, Jesus, don't come back until I get married. And then when you get married, Jesus, don't come back until I have kids. And we have kids. Jesus, don't come back until my kids are married. Until I have grandkids. All right, now I'm finally ready to go. You know, when I see my grandkids go to college. You know I mean? We just keep bumping it up. Because we're wedded to this world. And I'm not saying all things in that are bad. But what I'm saying is if we don't ever say, oh, Jesus, please just come. Not because we're dreading anything, but because we love him so much. Because we want him so much. Because we want his fame to be upheld. If we don't pray that, we're missing something. Because that should be our prayer. Jesus, come be in our midst. But also it means living out the kingdom day by day, right? May your kingdom come, even in my life, even in my disposition, even in my actions, even in my attitude. I think about this in Jesus' own ministry where he says, hey, if you see Satan getting pushed back, like in Matthew 12, truly the kingdom has come upon you. Where I am, there the kingdom is in your midst. Luke 17. I mean, there's this thing that says when we live like kingdom people, the kingdom is also coming there. But we long for this ultimate arrival. In this, we also pray for His will. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think this is hard just because, you know what? Uh, There's different levels to God's will that we don't always understand. There's God's planned will. He's going to do what He does. We should pray, God, do what you plan to do. There's God's prescribed will. Here's what He wants for our life. Here's what He doesn't. Here's obedience and disobedience. We should pray, Jesus, oh, let me do your will. And then there's this mysterious will. This is God, I know what you're up to, but again, I know you're good. My life is kind of in shambles right now, but you are gracious. I don't know what's coming tomorrow, but I know that you hold tomorrow just as you do today. I pray for your will to have its work in my life. That's how we pray. And I love this because the first three requests are, again, all God-centered. I mean, how often, I know in my own life, do I hit prayer and it's instantly, here's what I need. And where it really should start is, God, here's who you are. Here's what you're up to. Here's what you are accomplishing. Here's what I desire to see fulfilled in your purposes. And then from that, man, here are the things in my life that I ask you to address. The first is our need. Because he does get to that, right? After it says everything about God, it gets to our need. Give us this day our daily bread. Daily bread can be physical, but daily bread is also spiritual. And I love this because he says bread. He doesn't say steak. He doesn't say dessert. Right? Give us the stay of daily bread. Give me what I need. Not necessarily what I want. Because sometimes what I want, God says, no, no, no. Man, you don't need that. But I want it. God says, if you receive what you want, you'll realize you'll have a deeper need later. I'm doing you a favor. I am discretionary in how I divvy out my blessings to you based on an eternal perspective, not just a temporal one. See, the hardship for us sometimes is that we ask and then God doesn't do what we want. And then from that, sometimes we even grow cynical. Well, fine, if I pray and he doesn't do what I ask and what I ask for is a good thing, why even bother praying? Well, we have to keep in mind what Jesus says about our Father. In Matthew chapter 7, he says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and those who seek find, and those who knocks, it's opened. 
Or which of you, if his son's asking for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask of him? Now we go, so I should get what I ask for, what I want, right? No. Because he's a good dad. He's going to give you something. It just may not be what you want. Which is no different than you as a parent. There are times where your kids come to you and they say, I want X. And you have every perfect right in the world and reason to tell them no. And they'll think you're arbitrary, that you hate them, that you don't care, you're not interested, you were never young. Whatever it is. Right? You're out of touch. You don't make any sense. You're inconsistent. This will ruin my life. Right? Welcome to God's world with all of us. Where we look and go, God, I don't understand. This is a great thing to ask for. This would be brilliant. I don't understand why you said no. God says, because I'm your dad, I love you well enough to know. And so we should pray for God to act and God to do, but God then does what he does for our good, and we need to believe that for our truest need. We also pray regarding our sin, that God would forgive us, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. In one sense, we're completely forgiven through Jesus. Paid all the sin. But we still have this ongoing relationship with God, and the more we have sin in our lives in that relationship, the more it clogs it up. It's no different than being married. Right? You might be married legally, living in the same house, sharing the bills, all that stuff together, but the relationship is just plugged up, and just nothing's working right. And sometimes that happens with us. We choose certain things we know that displeases God. We're still in relationship. We're still saved. But boy, it's all bundled up. And until there is that, Jesus, forgive me, I repent, the relationship isn't going to quite be what it's supposed to be. And so we are to pray, forgive me my sins, my attitudes, my actions, my affections. We already learned all of that in Matthew chapter 8. Forgive me, I acknowledge that. More than that, help me with my temptations. He says, and do not let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. See, God will test us to build strength. But Satan wants to tempt us to destroy our strength. And sometimes the event of a temptation and a test is the exact same thing. God wants us to succeed. Satan wants us to fail. We need to pray, may I succeed. May I succeed so that I am stronger, not weaker on the other end of this. And that's not always fun. We could even ask, well, why does God bring testing into our life if the risk is we could fail? Well, because he knows that he's given us what we need to overcome it. And if we overcome, we're only going to be all the stronger, even though we faced a trial, even though we faced a challenge. I think about that with my son, Grayson. I recently taught him how to run the tractor at home. And at first, that thing, and he's like, and he was nervous to get on that tractor. You know, and and I'm like, no, you got to get on. He's like, I don't want to get on, dad. It's going to eat me. You know, and I'm like, just got to get on. And he was nervous and afraid. It was a test. I didn't want him to fail. I wanted him to succeed. That is the heart of God toward us. And he overcame the fear and he got on it. Now he's just like, oh, what's going on? You know, I mean, he's doing it. Right. Because he faced the test and he succeeded. Now, again, there's an enemy in the world that wants us to fail God's test, and he wants to tempt us to that failure. And so we pray, man, may that never be. I can take the testing from you, God, in your strength. Let me live in you. Now, here's what's interesting about this prayer. It just sort of stops at this point. If you have an ESV, an NIV, a New Living Translation, whatever, it just stops right there. 
Right? You used to, and thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Just wasn't in the original Sermon on the Mount. Well, you're like, just another one of those? I believe it's intentional. Jesus stops where he stops so that we will realize that even this prayer doesn't really have an amen on it. It has a continued all the time. Continued all the time. Paul says, hey, pray without ceasing. But he does say something that I think is intriguing. It's the reconciling gospel that he gets back to, verse 14. After saying, here's how we pray, he says, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive you. We go, wow, that's a weird transition. Here's how you should pray. Oh yeah, you better be forgiving. But throughout the Bible, forgiveness and prayer are linked together because really the fundamental thing is this. Pardoned people, pardon people. Pardoned people, pardon people. And if you're not one to pardon, get nervous. Get nervous. If you have seen so great a salvation for so deep a sin with so profound a punishment for our hell, and then you can't manage to forgive somebody who rubbed you a little wrong, be nervous. Because pardon people, pardon people. And if there isn't a spirit of pardon in your heart and in your life, Jesus is saying, maybe you just weren't ever pardoned. It just never came to that point. A lack of forgiveness affects our prayers. Jesus says it over and over throughout the Gospels. And you see even in 1 Peter chapter 3 where a husband's prayers are ineffective if he's fighting with his wife. Reconciliation and prayer go hand in hand. And so Jesus says, make sure you reconcile. And then the last thing he gets into is the heart of fasting. The heart of fasting. And he says, when you fast or but when you fast. I mean, he brings this up more than once, this idea of fasting. And, and this is the one we get to and everybody goes, okay, I'm done. Let's go home. Let's just end it. You're over anyway. So, um, because we just don't fast that often. I mean, Christians, this just is not our thing, right? It's foreign to most of us. I mean, we are a food nation. We have cable channels for food, right? For cooking food, for learning about food, for traveling America regarding food, for bad good and food, good food, bad food, fun food, fast food, junk food, processed food, organic food. All of that is on cable. There is no fasting network. None. What would that be all day? Here's snapshots of Gandhi. I mean, you know, it'd be like, that's the fasting network. It wouldn't be anything. Food surrounds Bible study. It's not Bible study if there isn't dessert. Churches live for the potluck. Why? Food. Date night, food. Friends over, food. We love food. We need food. Kitchen is the most used room of the house. Food. So then, we look at this and go, then Jesus, why do you want us to fast? Why fast? Well, here's the deal really quick. I'm going to give you four reasons why I think fasting is, is a healthy thing for the Christian. First of all, it exposes. When we fast, it exposes our true self, right? It just, it does, you know? It's like, there's been times where I've done prolonged fasts, and I just get uglier and uglier with every day. Ask my sweet wife, who almost wanted to consult a lawyer, I think, at one point. Like, you better eat? I'm calling the lawyer. All right, so, um, and, and stuff that I didn't even know was in me kind of came up. It boils up in that. And when you fast, it exposes our true selves. Another thing that happens when we fast, it expresses our deepest priorities, 
right? When we put all that food off for a day or days or whatever, we're saying, hey, more than the most fundamental thing that keeps me alive in this life, Jesus, I want you. I long for you. You are my deepest priority. Another thing that fasting does is it extracts our agenda. You see this in the book of Acts where they would pray, fast, and worship before they set aside the apostles. So it wasn't their opinion, but God's Spirit who worked. And when you fast, it cleanses the mind to hear the voice of God. And then we also fast because it extols God. We're we're saying, uh, Lord Jesus, come when we fast. Jesus said he fasts until the day he's with us again in the kingdom. He says, I'm not going to eat of the vine or drink the cup until I'm with you again in the kingdom. And he says, when the bridegroom's taken, then we'll fast. We fast because we long for Christ. So these are reasons for us to fast. And so when we fast, he says, do not make it obvious like the hypocrites. But they try to look miserable and disheveled so people will admire them for their fasting. I tell you the truth, that their reward, man, it's right there. That's the only reward they're ever going to get. This is good counsel. This is a little bit like when I'm sick. When I'm sick, you know what I do? I am sick. Right? I do that. Because I'm totally like wanting pity from my wife. Are you sick, man? I'm really sick. Did you eat your throat? Yeah. You know, um, <laughs> you know, I'm pathetic as a sick person, right? Well, that would be the idea. It says, don't do that, but comb your hair, wash your face. It says, then no one will notice that you are fasting except your father who knows what you do in private. And your father who sees everything will reward you openly. Again, message is really simple. Audience of one. Audience of one. As we give, audience of one. As we pray, audience of one. As we fast, audience of one, for his glory and his name. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder of these these blessed disciplines that we do for you. We praise you and thank you in your name. Amen.